Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Allison DeAngelis. And I'm Damian Gardner. Adam Feuerstein is off this week. It's Thursday, September 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The science behind drugs like Wegovy is changing the face of medicine, but the official story of who discovered what has consistently excluded the vital work of one chemist. Statsalane Chen joins us to talk about Svetlana Moisov and her fight for recognition. We also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including an FDA hearing on a polarizing ALS treatment, the end of the road for a once vaunted drug developer, and the sorry state of biotech stocks. All that after a word from our sponsor. From breakthroughs in drug developments to inside scoops on billion-dollar deals, join us October 18th and 19th for the annual Stat Summit. This year's speaker lineup is one you won't want to miss and includes Michael J. Fox, Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg, Nubara Fayan, Emma Walmsley, and Daniel Skrvansky. They'll discuss their groundbreaking work in the lab and the boardroom and its impact on the future of health and medicine. Virtual and in-person tickets in Boston are selling fast, so don't miss this incredible lineup. Secure your Stat Summit ticket today at statnews.com slash events. So, Damien, let's kind of conclude the conversation we started last week around Brainstorm and its uh, what was then, you know, upcoming uh, FDA adcom meeting. You covered it yesterday. Uh, tell us about the results on that that whole, you know, eight, nine hour long meeting. <laughs> and it was indeed that long. That's <laughs> right. So a panel of independent advisors to the FDA spent the entire day hearing about the case for and against, primarily against, the approval of Neuron, which is a stem cell treatment for ALS developed by a company called Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics. That panel voted overwhelmingly against recommending that Neuron be approved, against the notion that the company had demonstrated that its benefits outweigh its risks and that this is something that should be available to the roughly 20,000 um, people with ALS in this country. That vote came down to 17 votes against Neuron, one vote for, and one abstention, which as far as these panel votes go, and I've covered quite a few of them, that is about as decisive, as resoundingly negative as you will ever see. And and what stood out to me about this panel is that the resounding negativity was really across the board. In presentations about not just the clinical data supporting Neuron, which we discussed last week, which, you know, the phase three trial failed and the company found a subgroup of patients in whom they said they perceived a benefit. Not only was that poorly received by the expert advisors, but so too the underlying science of how Neuron is purported to work. The data there as presented to the panelists were unconvincing to where people had serious doubts about whether the mechanism of Neuron actually made any sense. And then furthermore, and this was new um, to the past week, this was information that had not previously been disclosed, the FDA has serious concerns about how Brainstorm manufactures Neuron, and most importantly, whether Brainstorm would be able to safely and consistently manufacture it after it was approved, such that they could guarantee that patients who were prescribed the medicine actually got a product that matched up to what was tested in clinical trials. That too was not well received by the panelists. And so this was, I mean, just 
a, a devastatingly negative panel with respect to the data. But at the same time, um, these events include uh, public comment periods in which anyone can sign up to testify. And in this case, the majority of people who signed up to testify were patients and families uh, dealing with ALS, all of whom urged the panelists to vote in favor of Neurone, in many cases citing anecdotal evidence of either themselves or their family members who had been in the Neurone clinical trial and had experienced benefits from the treatment, who felt like it had stabilized their disease or slowed the decline um, that categorizes ALS, which of course is a, a neuromuscular disorder that robs you of muscular function until eventually you die, usually of respiratory failure, and that's commonly within three to five years uh, of diagnosis. This is a devastating condition. And so the, the tone of the discussion all day was interesting. The panelists seemed to want to strike a balance, noting that they heard from patients that they have sympathy, empathy with these patients. A lot of these panelists are physicians who treat ALS, so they know very well the course of the disease, but underlining that in the end, the data that they were tasked with reviewing for neuron just did not remotely stack up to the standard that would be required for FDA approval. And I think notably in this panel, one of the panelists was the uh, designated patient representative, it was a guy who had ALS, and he too voted against the approval of neuron, citing the same concerns that the other physicians and scientists on the panel cited. I mean, this case is so awful and, I mean, confusing. I was really struck you know, I was I was reading your your coverage of yesterday's um you know panel vote and and hearing and hadn't realized up until this point that you know the benefit that brainstorm reported you know the the first trial the trial had initially failed this phase 3 and it was only afterwards after they did, after they did some analyses that they said that they saw signs of you know that the the therapy was beneficial. Um, I didn't realize until I read your piece, you know, this morning that the signs that it was beneficial was that I think in uh, mild patients that they looked at, you know, with mild forms of ALS, um, compared to kind of the overall clinical trial results, which were around like, what was it, like 32% of, of patients responding to the medication compared to 28% of placebo, which is really not statistically significant, that when they did the the kind of retroactive analyses, the, the response rate was the same, and it was the placebo group that dropped, which is just does not seem like good medical math to me. I'm I'm not a I'm not a biostatistician, but trying to make an argument where the placebo group data is is kind of rocky uh, does not seem like a winning argument to me. How how did the the panel deal with that? Right. I mean, there were biostatisticians on the panel and biostatisticians at the FDA who presented during uh, the course of the day. And and yes, I mean, uh, unsurprisingly, they found the word spurious came up quite a few times in the FDA's presentation, which, you know, any subgroup analysis from a failed trial is statistically perceived to be only, people say, hypothesis generating, which is to say it's an exploratory analysis. It is a means of learning things that might set in motion another well-controlled randomized placebo trial um, that could test the hypotheses that you've generated from your subgroup analyses. It is not considered something that you could 
uh, hang an approval on. At the same time, you know, the FDA has said, and I, I think people in the ALS community think that they have followed through on this in recent years, that they want to exercise regulatory flexibility when it comes to new medicines for rare, devastating diseases where the standard of care is just insufficient. And that absolutely describes ALS. The problem is, in every subsequent analysis that Brainstorm presented, there were glaring flaws in drawing any conclusions from it, such that the day kind of felt like Brainstorm would put up some data and, and kind of zoom in or zoom out in whatever way one had to do to conclude that, hey, there's a treatment effect here. And then we would watch the FDA systematically pick that apart, such that the panelists in their resulting conversation found themselves really wanting to see an approvable medicine somewhere in all of these data, but failing to do so because every analysis had such obvious problems in drawing conclusions from it, such that all of them said there is enough here to, as we've said before, base another well-controlled trial on to test these hypotheses that have come out of it. That is something that Brainstorm has not done. Their initial argument in not doing so was that it would unnecessarily delay the potential approval of this medicine and such thousands of people with ALS would die waiting for it. However, you know, based on the results of this panel and the FDA is not required to follow the advice of its advisors, although it commonly does, based on this panel, it seems very, very likely that the FDA will reject this medicine uh, in December when it has promised to make a final decision, in which case Brainstorm, a company with not a lot of cash and whose stock price got cut in half earlier this week and then got cut in half again um, after this panel, it's unclear how they would pay for such a study without that approval. So um, it's just, I think, an incredibly frustrating situation for many people in ALS, whether they think Neurone works or doesn't, that you know, there's a consensus I've heard that a lot of time has been wasted. Some people blame the FDA, a lot of people blame Brainstorm, and maybe there's some combination thereof in the minds of other people, but there's no question that these data clearly do not meet what the FDA perceives, of, perceives to be the standard of approval, and Brainstorm, the developer, does not seem to be about to embark upon the kind of study that would generate the data that might. Yeah, this is certainly like a situation I take no joy in you know watching this all play out. ALS is a terrible, terrible disease. But I mean, I, you know, find myself thinking about the fact that like, you know, is a cell therapy, which would like, let's say it was approved would be very expensive, very, very expensive. Um, you know, these are families that all that already have incredibly high healthcare costs, usually for, you know, the kind of assistance that someone with ALS needs once, you know, their muscular system and their, you know, neurological system kind of degrades. Um, you know, we're talking about home health care and just the idea of taking so much money from these people when we have a there are just so many concerns about the the efficacy of this this medicine seems wrong to me. But there was one person who voted in favor. What was their take on the whole situation? Yeah, that was the consumer representative on the panel. And her mm -hmm. point was largely that she found the patient testimony, the anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, in contrast to the, the evidence from the clinical trial, to be compelling enough such that it's worth giving patients a chance on this medicine. Because, you know, as everybody has pointed out, or as is well understood, 
ALS is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning it manifests in different and often kind of unpredictable ways in various patients who have it. It is not something where we've really, you know, drilled down on the biological causes of it and can devise medicines accordingly. Developing medicines for for ALS has felt like kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall because the disease um, progresses in such an unpredictable way. And one way to look at that is to say, okay, this trial clearly failed, um, but there is this anecdotal evidence, and that suggests that for some patients with ALS, for reasons we don't really understand, this medicine might actually make a difference. Now, that is not how the FDA traditionally approaches approving new drugs, but for, for the panelists who voted in favor of it, I think that was kind of her her thinking, is that there's enough there to where it's worth, I was going to say rolling the dice, I mean, it's kind of a classless metaphor, but like to where it's but worth it, giving people a shot. But that feels like the most shot. appropriate way to kind of parse this data. It does feel like rolling the dice in a way if you were to give this to someone because we don't understand how it works and we don't understand who it might work in if it if it works at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, exactly. And, and there isn't even really debate about what you just said. The debate is whether despite that it should win FDA approval. And, and like I said, after... Uh, the panel on Wednesday, it seems incredibly unlikely that that is what is to come. Okay. But we'll know, I think, December 8th is the Paducah? That's right. Okay. All right. December it is. In the meantime, um, we you also wrote this week about um, a company that used to be, I mean, quite the quite the stock driver, you know, in, in the heyday of 2018, 2019. Do you remember those? Do you remember those days of biotech? <laughs> <laughs> what a golden time. Um, Intercept, which got acquired this week by a company I have never heard of. <laughs> what what did Intercept, what deal did they make? That's right. That company is an Italian firm called Alpha Sigma, which I uh, have to disclose I had not heard of either. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the news is that they'll pay $19 a share for Intercept, which is amounts to roughly $800 million for the company. The reason it's worth talking about, I think, is as you mentioned, Intercept is a company, I mean, going back all the way to 2014, um, long before NASH, the now understood to be pretty prevalent liver disease, long before it was a pharmaceutical perceived gold mine, which it has become in recent years, it was a little bit of a mystery. And then I remember very well, early January, it was before uh, JP Morgan that year, 2014, Intercept said that a mid-stage study of its lead drug in NASH had been stopped early because it was so effective that it you know, rendered moot the point of carrying out the rest of the trial. The stock price quadrupled. And suddenly, and this happens, you know, diseases become trendy in biotech. Suddenly, every company you talk to was like, well, you know, we also have a NASH asset or what, you know, whatever our drug is, it also has implications in NASH. This became like the deriger indication because like yeah. i said it's a, it's a fairly prevalent disease estimated to affect something like 17 million americans and there are no approved medicines for it and that was true in 2014 as well fast forwarding through a lot of ups and downs and sturm and drong and etc intercept at one point seemed poised to win fda approval for what would be the first nash treatment that fell apart due to clinical disappointments regulatory setbacks culminating in just this summer the FDA finally rejected its application for NASH and basically said, come back to us when you have data from a long-term study that I think was going to take about three years to generate um, the kind of data that they needed. The company basically abandoned its implications in NASH for the sake of saving money at that time. And that leads to the deal that was announced this week, which, you know, again, it's less than a billion dollars. This is not 
major biotech M&A, but it is kind of the closing of a chapter of, of a very like manic and vibrant time in biotech. And it's worth noting that it's not as though there are still no FDA approved treatments for NASH, but the research continued to pace while Intercept was gyrating up and down with its fortunes. And there is another medicine from a company called Madrigal Pharmaceuticals uh, that is up for FDA approval this spring, um, whose clinical mm-hmm. data seem to, I mean, nobody's curing this disease, but looked better than anything Intercept had showed and certainly looked safer. Um, and there are a few other companies in the earlier stages of development moving forward with potential NASH products. So the Intercept story is not, it doesn't close the book on NASH research, but it definitely does kind of bookend um, one of the one of the celebrity companies of the last biotech boom. Yeah, it's it's funny to see, the, I mean, what has happened with the Nash field over the last, you know, several years. It really like there was a real boom cycle for for Nash. And I mean, I think just maybe a month ago, I was talking to an investor who made the comment that um, they're seeing a lot of companies that had Nash assets, you know, uh, drugs that they thought would work for Nash, now start um, kind of theorizing that because of the kind of relationship between, you know, liver function and and weight, that there might be like, oh, we should explore an applicability in mm-hmm. obesity and weight loss. This the Nash story um, has, yeah, Intercept just seems so emblematic of this like this high and low of this this field of drug development over the last several years. Yeah, that's true. It's a trend that kind of got interrupted by the latest trend, which is everybody telling you that they have a GLP-1-like or otherwise active potential obesity medicine. Because while it doesn't seem like treatments like Wegovy would necessarily resolve NASH, which is you know damage to the liver um, mm-hmm. caused by fatty liver disease, it seems pretty clear that if they were to become widely adopted, there would be fewer cases of fatty liver disease because it tends to be it tends to be something that is preceded by obesity and that is related to yeah. um, you know the other metabolic phenomena that accompany obesity. So as Intercept goes out, we also maybe kind of have to constrain our uh, expectations about just how how large the patient population for Nash might be because of the advent of these new medicines. So yeah, biotech is always turning and always giving us a new trend for. Uh, companies to hop on. So speaking of biotech trends, uh, stocks trending downward. Uh, As we record this morning, the (laughs) XBI commonly looked at biotech index is down 9% for the year. This is, of course, after a 2022 in which it fell something like 30%, which is to say that the slump that biotech has been in really since the height of COVID-19, it has not recovered, despite the fact that many people thought 2023 would be the site of exactly that recovery. And Allison, I know you spoke to um, a few investors and, and attorneys who are tuned into this about whether that recovery might yet be in the cards. What did they say? Yeah, that was um, something that like coming out of, you know, right after Labor Day, we were kind of hit with this like one, two, uh, not punch. That was a terrible analogy. But, you know, like this this <laughs> little one, two item of, you know, news that kind of gave people, I think, a little bit of a glimmer of hope with relation to the biotech market. First of all, two six you know successful uh biotech IPOs from Numora and from Raise Bio and then last week the Federal Reserve releasing new guidance where they actually kind of are tempering the you know rise of interest rates that they've been on for you know the last uh year or two and actually kind of 
talked about the possibility of interest rates going down in 2024. And that all kind of relates back to, you know, over these last two years since we kind of reached the highs of biotech, you know, the, the biotech stock market and biotech IPOs in late 2020 and early 2021, um, the general economy in the U.S. has, you know, interest rates have been higher, have been raising. There's been, you know, kind of continual fear of going into a recession. And that has impacted in many ways the biotech stock market, along with, you know, a a lot of other biotech news, um, you know, <laughs> that biotech's going public and, you know, failing major clinical trials, biotech's going to public too early. Suffice it to say, the biotech stock market has not been in, you know, the most vibrant spot of late, but coming out of these, these you know, two uh, kind of signs of hope. You know, I wanted to talk to people about what the expectations are and talking to attorneys, talking to investors. Um, there is kind of this like tempered optimism, maybe maybe we call it a cautious optimism for what the fourth quarter will look like, but really more of what 2024 will look like. Um the the sense that i got was that you know for the for the rest of the year we'll probably expect you know maybe 3 to 5 more biotech ipos which would bring the total to you know so far we're at 8 so that gives us what till 11 to 14 ipos which is far down from the heights of of 2021 but heading into 2024 you know attorneys are saying that they have clients who are kind of getting out their s1 paperwork refreshing those numbers, dusting it off, and kind of getting ready for a potential potential wave of IPOs in 2024. A, you know, uh, it, this depends on who you ask, but a, a an opening of the IPO window, so to speak, though many will argue that it, you know, has not been fully closed for the right types of companies. But there is a, generally a little bit of an optimism for the biotech markets but very tempered and there's still a lot to to see a lot to see what comes before we can really kind of throw our hats in the air and say hooray this <laughs> this downturn is over So unless you're new to the biotech industry, or maybe you've just woken up from a year-long coma, you've probably heard that about the fervor around GLP-1 drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy. You may have also heard about the companies and the scientists involved. But what many of us hadn't heard was the story of one woman, Svetlana Moisov, who says that her contributions to the development of these drugs has been overlooked. Our colleagues Elaine Chen and Megan Molteni uncovered new details about the timing and importance of her work, her interactions with the other scientists who've received credit, and the ensuing patent fight. Elaine joins us now to talk about what they learned and how it exemplifies the plight of many women in science. Welcome back to the podcast, Elaine. Thanks for having me. So, Elaine, what's been the narrative around the, you know, invention of these GLP-1 drugs, you know, in in the decades that 
they were kind of in progress and, you know, in these last couple of years that these drugs have been on the market. Yeah, so there have been three male scientists that have been credited as the people who discovered the GLP-1 hormone, which is the hormone that all these new drugs are based on. And these three people are Joel Habner, who ran a lab at Mass General when this discovery happened, his postdoc at the time, Daniel Drucker, and also a Danish researcher called Jens Holst, um, who was in his you know own separate lab. Um, and these three men have won a lot of awards, um, and the discovery of GLP-1, the hormone, has been cited as one of the major reasons. But Svetlana Moisov was also there at Mass General during this time, and uh, she held an independent position in the endocrine unit of the hospital and also ran the core facility that synthesized peptides and hormones. She had her own separate funding and also eventually had a grant, her own grant from the NIH to research GLP-1. So there were all these um, factors about her and she was independent, but she's been barely mentioned in articles about the history of this discovery. And she's also been mischaracterized. Um, Some articles have said that she worked under Joel Habner, that she was a postdoc under Habner. And this was all in, I think you said the 80s in this piece, that this initial research was happening? Yeah, it happened in the 80s. So we've seen inventorship disputes. I mean, there's a high profile one fairly recently over CRISPR genome editing, and they tend to come down to who showed what data and when. So what was Moisov showing compared to the stuff that was eventually published by Habner, Drucker, and Holst? So I would uh, classify the discovery of the GLP-1 hormone in three main steps. The first one was to find the genetic sequence. Um, And then the next step is to determine the structure and prove that this structure of the hormone actually exists naturally in the body. And then the third is to show the function of the hormone. Um, The first step uh, occurred before Drucker or Moisov arrived at Mass General. It was done by Habner and members of his lab to find the genetic sequence. Um, The second and third step um, both Moisov and Drucker did their uh, experiments separately to, to kind of find that there was a certain version of GLP-1 that existed, um, and then also to show that it stimulated insulin. Um, the difference between Drucker and Moisov's experiments were that um, Drucker's were in lab-grown cell lines, whereas Moisov's experiments that she led were in natural tissue. And Moisov argues that um, hers were, because they were in natural tissue and in the most relevant parts of the body, they were more consequential and physiologically relevant than experiments in lab-grown cell lines. Um, And um, there has been kind of debates around the timeline of things and who did what when that we get into in the story. But ultimately, Moisov also points out that she provided the molecules, she synthesized the peptides that allowed Drucker's experiments to be able to be conducted. So she's a co-author on all of his uh, main papers on GLP-1, whereas Drucker is not a co-author on all of her main papers on GLP-1. This story fascinates me because, you know, as Damien referenced, we are in an era where we're seeing some really interesting patent fights around, you know, CRISPR genome editing. But in this case, there were many aspects of this dispute that were resolved actually years before 
GLP-1 drugs hit the market and kind of hit the social conscious, um, they had actually, you know, Moisoff and Mass General had already had a patent dispute in, I think you said, like, you know, the early 2000s. So what has the scientific community kind of made of this whole situation and what has kind of been legally determined in terms of the patents about, you know, Moisoff's contributions to this work? Um, So with the patent dispute, what happened was there was a patent that was granted um, for GLP-1 in 1992. And initially, those patents only listed Joel Habner as the sole inventor. Moisoff only found out about these patents years later, and she she said she was shocked to find out. So she hired lawyers and she uh, fought for nearly a decade. And eventually, Mass General did agree to add her onto the patent as a co-inventor with Habner. Um, I should note that she says that she only got half the royalties that Habner got. Um, But nevertheless, you know, now she is on the patent. Um, Yet still, for years later, the scientific community didn't really know about her at all. And again, she's been mischaracterized in the literature as a postdoc and all of that. Um, It's hard to say why exactly she has been overlooked all these years later. She was in an interesting position where she wasn't your traditional PI or principal investigator of a lab as Habner was. She um, was in an independent position and she ran the core facility which for synthesizing peptides, which um, I think some would have seen as you know a, a facility that kind of provided services to other researchers rather than, you know, a facility that pursued their own independent research. And there's also another aspect, and we we, we um, talked to someone who worked under Habner at the time who talked about how at Mass General, which is this big hospital system, there was kind of an unspoken hierarchy t- uh, at the time where people with MD backgrounds, people like Habner, like Drucker, were near the top and then below them were PhDs, people like Moisoff, who was a chemist. So there might have also been kind of a disciplinary bias there that contributed to this kind of overall sense that Moisoff was kind of just providing uh, chemistry services and kind of making peptides and hormones for other researchers rather than making her own intellectual contributions independently. Additionally, um, you know, Moisoff, she left Mass General. She um, started getting into lines of research outside of studying GLP-1 in humans, whereas those other three uh, male researchers I mentioned earlier, um, uh, you know, continue to work and do work in GLP-1 in humans. And they stayed in the field and continued to write more uh, reviews and, and articles and kind of just accumulated more authorship, you know, specifically in that field. So we should note, you also spoke to Habener and Drucker um, for the story, not just about the conversation around who invented or who discovered what when, but also Moisov's seemingly like systematic deletion from the official account of the discovery of GLP-1. What did they have to say for themselves and about the whole matter? So so they both said they, they feel bad about Moisov feeling like she has been left out of uh, the story. Um, they have both said that she, they see her as a talented scientist and do give her credit for making uh, major contributions to the discovery. Um, 
Again, there have been some disputes about, you know, who was first to find what aspect of, of certain parts of the discovery. Um, but in general, they, they said that they feel bad and um, they denied that they played a role in diminishing her, her role from the story. So, so much of this story is not just about who did what with GLP research, but the underlying culture of science. I mean, Moisov's story seems reminiscent of of so many women in science over the decades and the generations. Uh, You know, how, in your mind, like, does her fight, what does it tell us about the research world, Um, particularly, I mean, in you know, the the 21st century. So I think what Moisov's story shows us is, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Drucker and Habner, um, you know, they stayed in the field. They continued to do more research and they accrued more authorship. And that kind of gave them the authority and expertise to write all these reviews that shaped the whole scientific field's understanding of who made contributions um, and who discovered what, and those get passed on over time and become entrenched. Um, and so this is how um, stories and narratives of how scientific discoveries are often made. This is not specific to just the GLP-1 story, but this is how kind of typically the way that people understand scientific um, discoveries in all fields, this is how the process works. But maybe as Moisev's story shows us, we shouldn't necessarily take these written histories for granted. And uh, maybe there's a lot underneath the surface that um, isn't told that uh, contributes to discoveries. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you too are feeling that cautious optimism about biotech. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.